Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. In peace, there's nothing so becomes a man as modest stillness and humility. But when the blast of war blows in our ears, then imitate the action of the tiger. episode of Heavenly Shows and Unnecessary Letters, a podcast where normally we are working our way through productions of every single play written by William Heath Shakespeare, who needs no introduction. But we do, so I'm Tammy Sarah Lindy. And I'm Luke O'Hagan. This week on Heavenly Shows and Unnecessary Letters, Kiss Me Kate, directed by George Sidney in 1953, with screenplay written by Dorothy Kingsley, adapted from the stage musical by Cole Porter, and... Ten Things I Hate About You, directed by Gil Younger in 1999 and written by Karen McCullough and Kirsten Smith, both based on Taming of the Shrew, written by William Shakespeare in 1603. It is well said that Shakespeare's stories are timeless in their core themes, and so it comes as no surprise that his works have been retold and refashioned time and time again. We thought to ourselves, you know what, 39 standard tellings of Shakespeare just aren't enough for us. We are going to add some bonus content. And so here we are on our 10th episode, woo! <laughs> Yay. bringing you a taste of the modern bard. The two shows we watched this week are retellings of last episode's Taming of the Shrew. And I have to say that these two movies are some of my favourites. One is a classic MGM studio 1950s era movie musical, and the other is a classic Hollywood 1990s era teen movie. If you've ever thought you would like to participate in the friendly banter about our takes on the productions we watch, this might be a readily accessible version of Shakespeare's story for you to dip your toe. And now for the sake of brevity, a synopsis of Kiss Me Kate and 10 Things I Hate About You in one tweet. It's Taming of the Shrew, but without the rubbish ending and way more high school slash backstage drama. So with the uh, bonus episode this week, uh, we're going to change the format just slightly. I, w- um, I want to tell you guys, we've j- literally just taken like six tilts at the intro to this because... <laughs> tell them that! <laughs> no, no, because like we- we're ten episodes in now, right? We've got this stuff in muscle memory. And so we've made a change and everything's gone horribly wrong. And I just want to like apologize in advance. <laughs> Or if anything goes horribly wrong throughout the rest of this. Don't ever apologize in advance. I find it to be a very, you know, good policy. It's terrible policy. So. Anyway. This show. We're going. So for this show, we're going to change the format just a little bit. And instead of, because we've already sort of discussed like what the story actually is and casting and character and all those kinds of things. uh, We thought we would talk about these two productions in the context of does Shakespeare survive a modern retelling? I just want to say that 
So I'm pretty familiar with 10 Things I Hate About You. I really like it as a movie. I, I actually really like that genre of film. There were kind of, I think, like a dozen films that all came out in that sort of 1999 era, which I all think are wonderful examinations of a particular culture that only started to exist around them. But Kiss Me Kate, I'm actually not very familiar with at all. Like, it's a show that Tammy grew up with, like, and she's watched a whole bunch. And I have only been in the show. <laughs> However. I mean, he says been in the show. It's important to note, here in Brisbane, we have a wonderful charity event called the 24-Hour Musical. Um, and it's basically a proper full produced musical. So it's not like one of those, you know, musicals done in concert style. No, no. It is a fully produced musical with full set, full costume, full lighting, uh, full orchestra, everything like that. And the only people, there's only like six people who know what the show is ahead of time. And that's the, none of the cast. That's none of the no. Musicians. So the, the only people who know are um, a very small handful of people who are on the production team who spend months in advance preparing. But basically, the the auditions are blind. The people who are auditioning don't know what they're auditioning for. Um, and then, um, yeah, they have they have twenty four hours from when they're told what show they're doing, what part they got, uh, when they're given the scripts and everything like that. They've got literally 24 hours between then and pre actually performing this to a paying audience. And I've done it twice. I did it in 2017 and 2018. And in 2018, we did Kiss Me Kate. And um, I loved it because there were times where the actors on stage forgot the lines and I was in the audience singing along. <laughs> yes. Um, so we stay up for 24 hours and we dance for 24 hours and we run lines and run music for 24 hours and so by the time we get to actually doing the play we no longer exist you know our spirits have merged with the great whatever and we're just <laughs> we're just on stage existing in the world it's a wonderful acting challenge it's really great i highly recommend you do it or come see it right but that is all to say that entire bit there is all to say i have no memory of this play none I played Pops the Doorman. Um, I think I said Bill Calhoun really loud at some point. But yeah, I, I, I watched this play the other day. Uh, it was like a whole new experience for me. So, Kiss Me Kate. Okay, so Kiss Me Kate. The conceit is that Cole Porter has refashioned the original Shakespeare's Taming of the Shrew and has written music and lyrics. Well, he in real life, he actually did, but in the in the movie version that we've watched, um, Cole Porter is an actual character who is in the movie. Yeah, which is different. Um, that's not on stage. That's, that's not the way that they do it on the Broadway production that Cole actually wrote. But So they've brought that context into the movie setting. Yeah. Um, but essentially, uh, Cole Porter has refashioned the original Taming of the Shrew as a musical, and uh, we follow the story of the cast putting on that musical. So we see segments of Cole Porter's original production. We see um, segments backstage with uh, the actors. Okay, I probably need to contextualise. So when I say... <laughs> because actors are playing characters who are playing actors who are playing characters, right? And so... The movie characters, like the... You're, you're very confusing. I'm... I'm going to try and do this as simple as possible. We're going to see if we can get this, okay? You have a bunch of actual real-life actors, and they are playing characters who are fake actors. 
and those fake actors are playing characters who are Shakespeare Sh- Shakespearean characters. Yes. That sounds right, right? Yeah. I think I got it's, there. Yeah, it's kind of the same thing as what Shakespeare did with his original play, which is interesting because they've used the same conceit. In that induction in that, part. In the yeah. induction part, they've used the same contraption to to do this bit. Um, so uh, a lot of the plot points do remain um, pretty similar. As I said, the induction is there in that, but the backstage drama parallels um, the echo- echoes the idea of the wife and the husband reconciling after a d- disagreement and bad behaviour and whatnot. Um, there's also the storyline for Bianca's um, character and her love interests, um, which also involves some gangsters, which is a lovely little addition. Um, and there's also nods to the dirty jokes in Shakespeare, such as the Tom, Dick and Harry number, which is one of my faves. Really great. Um, the casting for this. Um, so Howard Keel and Catherine Grayson were a powerhouse couple at this golden age of movie musicals. They appeared together as love interests in quite a few um, movie musical films. Um, and so they're, they're again playing those uh, two strong uh, Petruchio and uh, Catherine characters with the the husband and the wife and the the shrew, um, and Miller also makes a, a, a um, prominent appearance um, at the height of her powers um, as the younger sister Bianca. Um, she's a lot more so the it's interesting the way like because obviously last episode we talked about the dynamic between Bianca yeah, and Cat yeah. were actually really interesting. Um, this one tends more towards what we were talking about in the idea that Bianca's a bit of a ditz. Um, mm-hmm. And in this, Anne Miller plays it a lot more casual, has a lot more sexual allure than Catherine Grayson's Katarina. It's weird that she also has the same name, but that's fine. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that the work attempts to win over the viewer to Petruccio um, and subsequently his actor character, Fred, um, as a lovable scoundrel rather than a villain because um, uh, he still does some pretty selfish and pretty vain things um, throughout this show. Um, but, you know, ultimately the viewer is wooed into believing that he's ultimately deserving of Cat of slash Lily's love, both as Shakespearean characters and their, their Broadway facades. It does still echo the original play's final sentiments of the women, though. Um you know, becoming muted, becoming submissive. Um, however, this one does have a slight shift in the portrayal because it looks like Lily makes the choice to do so rather than it being the outcome of constant abuse and, and fall into Stockholm Syndrome and that kind of thing. So that's my quick 30-second not-quite wrap of Kiss Me Kate. Ta-da! And so 10 things ahead about you. Um for those of you who haven't seen it, and if you haven't, why not? It's wonderful. Hello, Heath Ledger, Swing. It's, it's it's on it's on Disney Plus. Go watch it right now. Um, instead of being in the uh, Italian town of Padua, we are in Padua High Yay! in Seattle, I think it is, in the nineties. And uh, instead of um, this story of uh, I will not let my daughter be married until my other daughter is married. Um, we have the, the 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 similar story of this man and his daughters. One of his daughters isn't allowed to date or go to prom until the elder daughter does. Mm. It's a little different, however, because it's um it's not it's based on he doesn't think anyone will want to date the older elder daughter. Yeah, and he's he thinks this is a safe way to keep them both under the under the roof forever. Yes, 
it's it's similar to the original in that um the character who Petruccio is sort of represented by who was Heath Ledger's character in in this film mm-hmm. has has initially a monetary uh, motivation. He's originally offered money to to try and court Cat in this. Mm-hmm. It there's a little it it handles the agency of the female characters a bit better than Kiss Me Kate. Uh, or sorry, than well it, it, does, <laughs> well, it, does, it does handle it better. It does than handle it better than Kiss Me Kate. Yes, um, but it handles it better than Tammy the True because I think uh, in the nineties it was obviously we're starting to get into sort of feminist. feminist film, right? So it still has sort of a classic, uh, the girls and the boys end up together in a happy arrangement uh, despite their bad behavior earlier. Um, but it is a bit better with the agency given to the girls. Uh, the casting, we have um, really uh, a who's who of, of actors later than this sort of early 2000s actors this was going this is the first big role for heath ledger um playing uh, patrick verona it's the first big role for joseph gordon levitt as bianca's love in- interest cameron um then we have julia styles as cat the shrew per se we have larissa olenek of alex mack fame as bianca uh david crumhell Hulse from numbers uh, <laughs> filling out trumio um, and then we have, there's a few other characters we have. There's Larry Miller playing the father, a young Gabrielle Union, who's a, just a, a, a popular girl who, whatever. Um, Alison Jenny in an amazing role. Like it's one of the truly great one scene wonders. Is it's this a great a, cameo. Yeah. Yeah. Really, really great. And this is Alison Jenny pre West Wing. Yeah. Right. This is, she's, yeah, it's so great. Um, we diverge from the original. Um, we have this character who is, he's kind of based on the financial back of the older gentleman in the original, t- original Taming of the Shrew. Uh, this is Joey, and he believes that he's the mastermind between, behind getting Cat a date, so he can date, date with a, with With quotes. connotations. Uh, Bianca. There's also a love interest for Krumholtz's character, and everyone has a happy ending paired off with each other. And now, time for a quick ad break. So, with that sort of summary, I think that 10 Things I Hate About You attempts to give the shrew character more pathos, like what we said before. Yeah. Um, it's got, she's got a more complicated backstory, a reason for why she's so shrewish, not that she's just bad-tempered. And it handles being shrewy in a different way. Yeah, it does, it does. Um, I also think the character of Joey has been created to take some of the villain heat off Heath Ledger um, so that, you know, the teens of the 90s can feel comfortable in their dreamy fantasies of, you know, falling in love with Heath and, you know, yeah, I'm guilty of, yeah, anyway. Um, <laughs> sorry, I just had a moment. <laughs> um, well, for, for, for those um, in our audience that are not Australians, Heath Ledger is very important to Australians. I think he's important regardless of the Australian context. Sure, but he's especially important to us. I mean, he is especially important to us, but that's fine. Um, Yeah, ripping. Um, Although the ending does seem to have, again, more agency for the girls, it still ends up with everyone being paired off in heteronormative relationships as if that's the only happy ending there can be. Um, It also really reinforces that idea that nice guys no matter the brand, whether it's, you know, Heath Ledger or, or Joseph Gordon-Levitt, um, can get the girl if they just keep showing up. Yeah, it's a little weird. It like, is I a think, little weird. Yeah. But, yeah, so uh, were there sort of any 
any things that you specifically want to mention about these productions, about their relationship to Taming of the Shrew? Like, drop drop some drop some knowledge, drop some opinions, drop, drop some knowledge. Okay, um, Fred. <laughs> in Kiss Me Kate is no better than Petruccio and Taming of the Shrew. Yeah, no. I'm sorry. He spanks her on stage in front of people. That's sexual assault. Yeah. Like, it, it's 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 very 50s, right? Yeah. The, the story is very 50s. And as such, it's automatically going to be icky, right? Yeah. But it's not like it was, you know, putting that on stage today. Like, these were like the people in Taming the Shrew did. Yeah. So, it, it gets a it bit It was of... a production that was made in 1953, and that in 1953, that behaviour was acceptable. Absolutely. But what I actually really liked was the relationship between Bianca and Herbo, which is much more... Uh, I, I th- I, Bianca is a much more modern woman in that context. Like... She, Are you talking about her as the Shakespearean character? No, I'm, or talking, as the about, actor? I'm talking about the actor. Yeah, the actor okay, played yeah, by yeah, Anne yeah. Miller. Yep. Um, and I just, I, re- I really like um, her power in that relationship. Yeah. And so sort of her and her boyfriend are attempting to get sort of into the industry through the good graces of Fred. Yes. And she is the one that's having to constantly do a boyfriend who's, who is, he's the airhead. Yeah. Just be like, look, we need to do this. We like stop going off and gambling, stop doing all this other stuff. Yeah. And you know, it's just interesting. It's interesting to have, um, those archetypes switched around in that way in 1953 of all things. You yeah. Know? It kind of, I think really, um, predates a, a lot of that similar work would be done later on in the decade with, with, uh, Marilyn Monroe, films and stuff like that yeah. kind of giving giving women some agency and, and some choice yeah. um i like that um i really like the character of pops the doorman <laughs> <laughs> yeah look it, uh, kiss me kate is such a musically musical um, it is, but that's and that's the whole point of it it's this like window into the backstage world of broadway right mm. and i think that's what like, as a kid growing up watching it, that's really what I found romantic about it. I didn't get a lot of the Shakespeare stuff growing well, up so as a kid. It's so Shakespeare. And it was funny, actually, because as we were watching it, um, uh, when when we were watching it, like, after Taming of the Shrew, all of a sudden I realised that the Shakespeare bits in Kiss Me Kate are lifted straight from Shakespeare. Yeah, and I was like, oh, I remember him saying that. Oh, I remember him saying that too. And I got so excited because all of a sudden this whole section of this movie that I had watched, you know, for decades, or no, not, not decades. Like It is decades. You're very old. No, I'm not that old. Um, for y- several years, <laughs> but you know, like there was this whole other section of this movie that all of a sudden I found more accessible almost. Like I actually understood more about what was happening and I, I kind of really enjoyed that. Um, and then I realized as we were watching it, how many bits of the original movie that I clearly fast forward because I thought they were boring. Oh yeah. Cause as a 14 year old, you really don't want to sit and watch Howard Keel sing for three and a half minutes about his little black book. Yeah. There's also, um, I want to give some props to these, to these actors because I think they actually handle the Shakespeare really well. Yeah. <laughs> like it's. Well, I mean, they're all they're all well trained. Like they're all classically trained actors in this period. Like it's not like they're just you know 
Well, some of them are. Um, the character, so Howard Keel and Catherine Grayson definitely are. How, how, yes, they they are for sure. Um, there's a great story about one of the actors who plays in this movie. Um, it was an early role of his, and um, if you if you read his 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 biography online, it goes through like he was in you know ten fifteen movies. Then he decided he needed to learn to act, so he went to Broadway. <laughs> <laughs> I just I I really appreciate that. There's there's something wonderful about the 50s movie scene in that way of just like it's it's so it's commercial and that's bad because obviously it produces some horrible stuff and people <laughs> will exploit it and stuff but just the the extent to which they were openly and blatantly commercial is kind of wonderful yeah it's like wow that really used to happen you know if it happened yeah. to you these days you'd shoot someone but that, but <laughs> it's it's it, it's fun to watch and and i like that Cole Porter can really write a song. Yeah. Uh, you know, he's Cole Man Porter. Man can write a tune. It's, it's, you know, it is what it is. It's fantastic. Um, it's the best songs we've seen so far because, you know, Shakespeare and songs. Um, oh, that's unfair. I think, you know, there are a few songs in a couple of the productions that have been okay. But Cole none Porter... None of them have been this. Yeah, no, because they're not Cole Porter. <laughs> no. In terms of the, of the relationship to Shakespeare... I, I think it's an interesting artifact of history is Kiss Me Kate because there is some truth to it. There's some truth to this idea that Cole Porter was like, I'm going to do a musical adaptation of Taming of the Shrew, which is a bonkers idea. Like yeah. that's, that's, that's crazy. And the only reason it worked and the only reason it was popular is because it was him that did it. Right. Yeah. So it becomes kind of an artifact of its time. I don't think it's really especially, great in terms of it's something that people should go back and study from now put it this way it's it's not one of those shows that you're seeing getting a big old revival on broadway in 2020 i think they did a revival relatively recently not that recently no and certainly i haven't seen any any revivals being done on broadway that have been popular i will say it does get redone in england quite a bit really yeah because of the shakespeare connection oh if you want oh my gosh there was a revival in 1999 really yep i just looked it up well that takes us wonderfully to two uh 10 things i hate about (laughs) you and i'm I'm gonna doesn't it just i'm going to drop my hot take we so we have a section of the podcast called nitpicks and hot takes and we don't always do hot takes but i have one for you here (laughs) and it's called the, the the title of this ted talk is 10 Things I Hate About You is Better Than Taming of the Shrew. <laughs> it is just better. It is... Yeah. It's wonderful. It's, it, you know, it's an artifact of its time, but it's something that that still stands up, you know? It's because it has a completely different... Like, it's Taming of the Shrew without as much misogynistic bull wallop. Well, the, the misogyny that's there... Like it exists. And oh, it exists. It, it, it has. It has to be like this is a this is a a movie where the main character walks around reading Sylvia Plath novels. It is. It is. Yeah, very self aware in its feminism. Yeah, and that I think is probably the best way to react to Taming of the Shrew. Right, is well, to really make it really hyper self aware in fighting against that misogyny. Right, and and she says you know the 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 character of cat 
openly talks about how why do we have to read the writing of old dead white guys? And it's like, you know what? It's you're, so you're, great. You're dead, you're dead right. Yep. Absolutely. Yep. You know? and oh. it's Yeah, it's very, like, 10 Things I Hate About You is very, um, it can be very meta, meta-theatrical in some aspects of it, which is what I enjoy about it. Yeah. I obviously watched this growing up in the 90s. I was uh, basically cat's age when this movie came out. Yeah, around yeah, about. Around about. You're a little, you're a little, little younger. younger than her, little, yeah. little younger. I was probably Bianca's age. Yeah. Um. So there was a big part of me that identified with this. You know, I don't give a damn about my reputation. Like when that theme song comes in with Cat being introduced to us on screen, like there's just something that rises in me that goes yes. Um. You know, like that whole idea of. The shrew is not a shrew because she's cantankerous because she's just in a bad mood constantly. She's angry at the world because of the way the world treats her. Yeah. You know, she doesn't she she doesn't want to be one of the popular kids and she doesn't want to just fit in and go with the flow. She wants to create her own mark on the world and she wants to have her own identity and she wants these things and she's angry about it and I really identify with that as a 15-year-old. I really wanted to be her. I also really wanted Heath Ledger to come and sing to me and, and just sweep me off my feet and, oh, my gosh. But... <laughs> so, he, like, <laughs> I think um, I think it's really interesting. I, I don't think any... There were girls that existed in 1999 that went and watched this and identified with the Lar- Larissa Relanik and, like, the girls who were like, oh, why is she being... So she should just try and be popular. Like I don't think that's a real thing. I mean... I think most of the people who watch this movie identify with Kat. And it's why this kind of character and this kind of story was so popular at the time. Because of sort of the impact of, especially third wave feminism, on teenage girls at the time. And teenage girls, it really started to come out and sort of demand and and shake down sort of what would remain of the bonds of misogyny on them. Like I'm sure that there are there are were some teenage girls who are just all about being popular. That's always I'm raising be an the eyebrow case, over right? here, people. Yeah. But I just <laughs> I, I think that it's such an it's such an a an artifact of its time. And you, you can see that because it's so related. There are so many other movies and TV shows that have these similar characters in. Like a, a great, mm. great example, uh, Freaks and Geeks, which to my mind mm. is the best piece of sort of 90s teen content. Yeah. In terms of... Well, see, I never watched that. So I have watched it now. I didn't watch I, it at the time. I was about to get very cross with you. I'm like, you have watched it. I have watched yeah. it. Um, and this is just an interesting way of taking those tropes and telling this Shakespearean story with them. And if you're going to finish your bit with fantasizing about Heath Ledger, I'm going to finish my bit with saying that Larissa Alanik, as Alex Mack, was very formative for some of us. <laughs> and there's, I have nothing more to say on the matter. <laughs> well, here's the thing, though, right? Because, like, I look at... Uh, <laughs> I'm I'm realizing I'm I'm becoming self-aware of something that I'm identifying and you know Howard Keel for me growing up was definitely the kind of guy that I would be totally okay with you know oppressing me and <laughs> <laughs> oh wow and and sweeping off my feet and and you know uh, you know beating me into a better attitude and and Heath Ledger is also the kind of guy that 
I would I would definitely you know be okay with uh, making fun of me and 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 being a right turd at and you know buying me a guitar I'd be okay with that too and I've just realized that I've been institutionalized and being okay with men being crappy towards me yeah that's right this is what we call internalized misogyny right like yep <laughs> and you know what that's okay you, we we all have to sort of develop and you're you're realizing these things and that's good I'm 30 something years old and I'm <laughs> only just figuring this out this is terrible well I mean you're only just figuring this out but you did realize that you didn't want men to treat you badly you know at least you know several months ago so. <laughs> <laughs> yeah right about the time I met you oh funny <laughs> hilarious so, so but I mean yeah. in my in my version of 10 things I heard about you the ending yes the ending that we see in the movie is you know happily ever after blah 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 blah. but in my mind Kat and Patrick break up in the next six months uh, when Kat moves across the country to go to college somewhere else. Yeah, I mean, she, like, like <laughs> I don't think their relationship is especially healthy. No. Although, like, the, the way that the ending happens, I think, is... Because I actually read the script before uh, before we watched the <laughs> movie for whatever reason. I don't You're obsessed with reading scripts. No, I'm, I, I'm not that guy normally, I swear. Not normally, no, I know, it's but, hilarious. But I just did because I thought it would be funny. And it's actually um, the script as written was really long it would have been really really long they cut out a lot of stuff and i think that sort of that move towards uh cat and patrick having this breakup mm. and then she goes back to class and she reads this poem it's all handled in about five minutes in the movie i think it needed a bit more space to breathe right a little bit more space to give us give us cat really pondering what she actually thought about patrick yeah, know. but that's not what the target market wants. No, and look, it's, and that's that's it's, why they're, they're not they're not making this film to be you know a great piece of art. Like it's, it's not, not a the great Godfather. movie. No, it's not. It's not. <laughs> it's not groundbreaking. Like honestly, I feel that the only reason this this movie has lasted the test of time is it's kind of like a dirty dancing type of thing. Of there is a scene that makes this movie unforgettable, and that is Patrick Verona. Heath Ledger, singing, you're just too good to be true. I want you to realize that in saying what you've just said about Dirty Dancing, yeah. and saying that there's only one good scene in Dirty Dancing, you have invited the wrath from high atop the thing. And by that, of course, I'm talking about my mum who listens to this podcast <laughs> and has like real strong feelings about Dirty Dancing. Don't get me wrong, I love Dirty Dancing, but it's just another classic yeah. version. In fact... It's very How, similar it's to this. It's very similar to this story. It turns out that teen, all teen uh, romance movies are fundamentally the same, and they're all fundamentally Taming of the Shrew. Yeah. The ones that aren't Taming of the Shrew are Romeo and Juliet, but that's for another podcast. That's for another day. Yes. Is there any other special... Oh, one more special mention before we, um, uh, I guess, wrap this up. Yeah. Um, is... Uh, Bob Fosse. Oh, yes. So Bob, a very young, very early in his career, Bob Fosse is in Kiss Me Kate. And I didn't even realize this until we watched it for this reviewing. But there's a section, there's a long ballet, as were many, many long ballets back in the 50s, 
golden era of movie musicals. Um, but I always, I remember watching it as a kid and going, oh yeah, this is all normal. And then there was this section of the ballet that just felt, there was a real shift in energy and it just, it was just totally different to all of the other choreography for the rest of the show. And I'm just like, I don't understand why they did that. Turns out Bob Fosse choreographed it. And so as we were watching it, I was like, well, of course he did. That is definitely Bob Fosse choreography. And this this is before he's directed anything. This is before yeah. like his first gig in the big organized world of, of, of entertainment was a contract with MGM, I guess it is. Yeah. And yeah, and this is this is one of his first I think it's his second movie he ever did. Yeah. And like so that uh, bit he choreographed is fascinating. In the song Tom, Dick and Harry, yeah. which if you're not gonna watch the whole musical go just, just look just look that up on just YouTube. look up that number yeah. it's really really good and uh, like tom dick and harry and miller yes so he plays horsentio which i guess is harry and yeah. the other two boys that are with bob are both clearly very classical dancers yes. their extension is perfect yes and their legs and their way they hold themselves is perfect and they do a lot of um, dance sort of canon stuff yeah. where they're each doing it. And either Bob's in the middle or Bob's at the end. And he's so clearly Bob Fosse. Yeah. It's wild. Like, like every, all of them, they're, they're really sort of extended and lovely and perfect. And he's in tight to his body and high energy. But and it's really because the other thing, too, is that like from my memory as a child, I remember him. Yeah. I always remember him standing out to me, like just in his, because he doesn't have a big role and it's basically a bit role with this other guy, but I don't really remember the other dancer. He's fairly, like, he blends in, whereas yeah. Bob Fosse has always stuck out to me. I just didn't know why, but you can understand why he was such an eclectic personality and why people were drawn to him because he just, he just stands out. He was born to stand out. Yeah. So maybe after we're done with um, Shakespeare, we watch... All of Bob Fosse's plays. There's some wild <laughs> stuff in the seventies. I don't. I don't think we're. I don't think we're qualified to, <laughs> to comment on Bob Fosse's work. To be honest. <laughs> hey, he's he dances. He dances, <laughs> and it's good. Yes. Uh, anything else you'd like to say about this plays? Um, look, if it's the choice between watching these and watching the original, I'll probably watch. 10 Things I Hate About You. Yeah, 100%. And, I, I'm not joking when I say it's later. better than Taming of the Shrew. It, it is. I know it's, you're it, not. I know I agree with you. It yeah. is It is better. Um, you know, I missed the, 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 the couple of the jokes from the original, but I mean, as I said last time, I'll probably just, you know, edit down that yeah. <laughs> movie yes. or whatever. Uh, no, I, I look, I, I enjoyed these rewatches. Um, if you are sort of out there and you think you might want to watch something that's Shakespeare-ish but not full-on Shakespeare, I we recommend these movies. They're, they're a good good bit of fun. Yeah, and there's nothing there's nothing wrong with mass entertainment. We need to remember when we do Shakespeare, and we need to remember throughout this whole process that Shakespeare was mass entertainment. Like, Shakespeare was not creating the sort of high-class uh, entertainment that we seem to perceive his work as today. He was producing 10 Things I Heard About You, right? He was producing work for everyone to see. And so I think that movies like 10 Things I Heard About You, and especially Kiss Me Kate in its role as a musical, because musicals definitely fit into this, this, um, this way of doing things, these are the real descendants of the work that Shakespeare did in creating really fantastic, high-quality, thought-about 
work for everyone to watch. And I think everyone should watch them. And now, Sonnet 141, as rewritten by Cat in 10 Things I Hate About You, and happily, still not Sonnet 18. I hate the way you talk to me and the way you cut your hair. I hate the way you drive my car. I hate it when you stare. I hate your big dumb combat boots and the way you read my mind. I hate you so much. It makes me sick. It even makes me rhyme. I hate the way you're always right. I hate it when you lie. I hate it when you make me laugh, even worse when you make me cry. I hate it when you're not around and the fact you didn't call, but mostly I hate the way I don't hate you. Not even close, not even a little bit, not even at all. Thanks for joining us on this special episode of Heavenly Shows and Unnecessary Letters. You can follow us on the socials using HSAUL Podcast, where we will also make our show notes available. Feel free to send us any questions there or send us an email at hsaulpodcast at gmail.com. You can subscribe to Heavenly Shows and Unnecessary Letters on iTunes, Spotify, or anywhere good podcasts are available. Next time, we'll be back on the Shakespeare Trail, watching the 2015 Globe Theatre performance of Measure for Measure. This podcast is produced in partnership with That's Not Canon Productions, and the music is by me, with editing by both Tammy and myself. Thanks to William Shakespeare, Zane, Daryl, Scott, Janet, Bernadette, David, Emily, Kate, Peter and Jason for your help and mentorship. See you next time. Hey, girly. I mean, woman. How you doing? That's getting more and more sexual every time you do it. (laughs) Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.